Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm Chris. I work at Skylight Books. Um, I also work at the LA Review of Books. And this is our panel on YA dystopia and uh, why there is such a trend in the end of the world. So welcome to our conversation about it. Um, I'm really lucky to have uh, Cecil Castellucci here. Uh, moderating this panel. She is a, just a fantastic author um, here living in LA. She's right there. Um, you know, are we on 12 books or going on 12 going books? On 12. Going on 12 books. She's the author of Bat Boy Proof, The Plain Janes, First Day on Earth. First Day on Earth is uh, the, the Year of the Beast right there, which is this great uh, graphic novel slash, um, you know, one chapter writing one chapter, illustrated, wonderful book. Um, you know, she's uh, won the California Book, book Award Gold Medal um, for Grandma's Gloves. Her short stories have been published in Strange Horizons, Yarn, Tor.com, lots of anthologies. Uh, she And she's the YA editor at LARB. That's the LA Review of Books. And um, she's also in this great anthology here, After, um, which is really, really kind of a fantastic little book that we have for sale here at Skylight. So anyway, I'm going to pass uh, it on to Cecil. But thank you for coming. Um, all our events are at skylightbooks.com. And we also um, have a membership program that really helps us retain your loyalty by us giving you stuff and uh, keeping track of where you live. So. Um, if you want to join, there's more information at the counter. Anyway, thanks again for coming, and I'll pass, on, pass you on to Cecil. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I'm going to steal that piece of paper. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're going to share a microphone. Oh, we're doing a raffle, too. We've got um, some books donated. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> um, from, the, uh, from the LA Review. I have a lot of things that I have to organize here. 
Um, so I'm super excited about this panel because I, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up loving uh, dystopian fiction uh, when uh, I grew up. Uh, so I'm really excited about uh, about this panel and about the authors that are here this evening. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about the authors. Oh, first of all, this evening is also uh, being co-sponsored by Intelligentsia Cafe. So if you want to get some, some delicious iced coffee or some iced tea, uh, they have it up front. Um, uh, but this evening we have a conversation with Jennifer Bosworth, whose new book is Struck. Uh, Jennifer Bosworth lives in Los Angeles, California. She's the author of the young adult novel Struck and is the writer, half of a director-writer team with her husband, Ryan Bosworth. Please welcome Jennifer Bosworth. Uh, Chris Howard was born not far from London, but he lives in Denver, Colorado now. And before he wrote stories, he wrote songs, studied natural resources, worked for the National Park Service, and spent years leading wilderness adventure trips for teenagers. Uh, he got a Publishers Weekly Flying Start th uh, this last year in fall 2012, um, followed uh, the release of his debut novel, Rootless. Please welcome Chris Howard. <laughs> Uh, Cherie L. Smith's first book, Lucy the Giant, was an American Library Association best book for young adults. Uh, and she also, it was translated into Dutch, Lucy XXL, and it was awarded an honorable mention in the 2005 De Gooden or Golden Kiss Awards for children's literature in the Netherlands. Cherie's novel, Sparrow, was chosen as a National Council for the Social Studies Children's Book Council Notable Social Studies Trade Book and is a Louisiana Young Reader's Choice Award. Um, she also released Hot, Sour, Salty, Sweet in February 2008, and uh, her book, Fly Girl, was a historical YA novel set during World War II, which also won a California Book Award. Her new book is Orleans, and it's uh, just come out this last week. So please welcome Sherelle Smith. So um, in order to get... Uh, uh, the first thing that I thought that we could do is uh, we would have a little amuse-bouche uh, from everybody, uh, just like sort of two pages from everybody's book uh, to read, just so that we get an idea of, uh, of, of what, we're, what we're dealing with here. So you want to go first? So, yeah, but my book's over here. Oh, wait, you, why, why don't we just grab? We can just because grab. it's marked. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'll figure it out. All right, should I start with Jen? Should I start with Jennifer? Are you, you all right? Be really fast. <laughs> I know what it is. I'm so sorry. It's just that it's so exciting. I don't know what to choose. And here we go. I also forgot my reading glasses, so bear with me. <laughs> I am a train wreck. That is not the story. So um, this is a segment of Orleans and. I should say that there are two tribes um, that are, their tribes in the city of New Orleans, the former city of New Orleans, are based on blood type. And so the main character, her name is Fen, and she is part of the O negative tribe. And they are holding a powwow with the O positive tribe. I'm sorry, I've got that backwards. She's an OP, and they've invited the O negs to discuss joining forces. And so they've just had uh, a dinner, and now our storyteller, Cinnamon Jones stand up now on the far side of the fire. In the early days before the sky got so angry at the sea and went to war, there was a piece of land between them and they called her New Orleans. 
She was a beautiful place, a city that sparkled like diamonds, sang like songbirds, and danced a two-step to stop men's hearts. He sway his hips as he speak, and though he a beanpole of a man, the way he wears robes, made special for times like this, you'd think he the most beautiful woman in the world. The grace of a dancer, Lydia call it. And he can pitch his voice to sound like girl, woman, baby, or man. His daddy named him for the color of his skin, ruddy brown and smooth, and it stick because his stories be like cinnamon too, sweet, savory, and rare. Uncle Romulus say when he a kid, folks come running when they smelled cinnamon in the kitchen because it meant something sweet, bacon in the oven, like at Christmas time. Well, Cinnamon Jones be in the kitchen tonight, and Lydia be hoping he spin a tail sweet enough to make them own eggs take a bite. I should say that Lydia is the leader of the, uh, of the O-positive tribe. And the people, he say, Lord the people, they was black and white and yellow and brown and pink as a lobster sometimes too, but they was beautiful because they could dance like the city and sing like the city and love like the city was loved by the sky and the sea. It was the people who made the city of New Orleans. The rest of the camp be sitting around the cook fire, tamped down now so, no fl so the flames don't give us away, just enough light and heat to make it cozy. The own eggs look satisfied. Oneg Davis leaning back on a log like he owned the place. Natasha sitting next to him, looking even more like a lioness. They be family, all right. I can see it in their lines, the way they both be draping so lazy-like in front of someone else's fire. Brave fools, I think. And that mess, running the family. Did you eat yet? Lydia asked me quietly. I shake my head and she hand me a bowl. She take the last bowl for herself before Caroline take the serving board away. The leftover wild boar and sweet potato will fry up into cakes for breakfast. Lydia eats slow, and I know she'd be studying Davis as much as she'd be listening to Cinnamon's story. I bolt down my food, push my bowl away, and whisper into Lydia's ear. Got to check on them boys around the perimeter, make sure they be working like they should. Lydia nod and squeeze my hand when I rise. She look real tired tonight. That baby be weighing down on her something awful. If we ain't lucky, she'd be giving birth before we move camp again. But there'd be no profit in worrying like that now. So I squeeze her hand back and head to the edge of the light. Cinnamon's story be reaching the point where the sky and the sea can't live without New Orleans being their own. So they start to fight over her, sending their daughters and their sons to wreak havoc. I'd be too far away to hear him naming the storms that tore the city down, but I know the names. Rita, Katrina, Isaiah, Lorenzo, all the way up to Jesus, or Jesus, like Cinnamon say. And that be the end of New Orleans. She loved that last storm so much, she run off with him and leave only Orleans behind. The woods be dark and deep tonight. I smell pine needles, fresh after yesterday's storm, musty and sharp at the same time. The air be cooler here, away from people and the fire. I, ain't, I look behind me and be glad to see we built this place right. Ain't no fire seen from here, the way we shaped the Hogans, wove them tight, blocked the view. It'd been Romulus who taught us to build camp in a spiral so there'd be rows enough to block the light, but it'd be my daddy who showed me how to dig a fire hole deep enough to cover real quick. Uncle Rom be surviving in a group, but daddy showed me how to survive on my own. I reach the edge of the clearing and wait for my eyes to adjust. To my right, I hear an owl screech. I hoot soft and the owl don't answer, but some of our boys do, off to the left. Then the wind pick up from another direction and I hear something else, rustling from deep in the woods. I hoot again. This time, there be no response. Whoever it be, it ain't our boys. Then I see torches headed toward camp. Allez, allez, I scream the alarm, warn everyone to flee. I pull my knife and run back to camp, to Lydia.
Shall we? I kind of want you to uh, read mine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read from Rootless, which is my debut. came out in November. And it is set in a future world where nothing can grow except the type of genetically engineered corn. And in this dusty, desolate place, a young man called Banyan builds trees out of metal and scrap and all bits of junk, anything he can find, until he discovers a clue to the whereabouts of the last living trees and sets off to try to find them. So this is one of the first things that happens as he sets off across uh, the road heading west. And uh, it's chapter 19. I had the nail gun tucked at my waist and my shirt pulled down over it, and I kept faking at the engine as the pirates rumbled closer. They had music blasting, a regular party rolling up, the electric sound of guitars split the air as the first truck sank to a stop. The wind went soft and the dust eased a little. I turned from my engine and made a big deal of peering up at the truck closest to me, flashing the dumbest grin you ever seen. I yelled out about as loud and cheery as I could manage, act like you got nothing to worry about. That was my plan. Each one of those tankers had nine sets of wheels and a solid box on the back, guns spiky off the top and pointy out the side. I studied the lifted tires with rubber-knuckled tread, the graffiti and tinted windows. The music stopped and the engine sighed, then fell silent. I waded over to the truck closest, waving my hands in the air, and just as I reached the cab, its door came flying open and all I could see was legs, thighs, as strong as they were pretty. The girl leapt out of the cab and stared down her broken nose at me. Seen one pirate, you seen a hundred. The mohawks and the rubber boots, three-foot hair and six-inch heels, if she was older than me, there weren't much in it, but her eyes showed the true mileage, if you know what I mean. A rifle of some sort hung loose off her shoulder, goggles dangled from her neck like the dust didn't bother her a bit. Something wrong with your wagon, the girl said, crossing her arms as she looked me over. The power converter, I shrugged. I think the fuse is fried. Where are you heading? Vega. Alone? Why? You want to come? I pushed my goggles up and squinted in the dust as if I might match her in some way. I could use a little company. The pirate threw her head back in the storm and laughed. Then she stepped closer to me and lifted my shirt up. So what's this for? It's my nail gun. You always carry it shoved in your pants like that? Not always. Just a regular joker, huh? Just stuck on the side of the road, sister, I said. Any chance you got parts for a trade? Why? What you got in the back? One of the trucks began blasting its horn at us. Voices yelled through the dust, but the girl just raised her hand to silence them. She threw open the back of my wagon, peering in at the bag of tools, the scattered bags of popcorn. I was pretty sure I'd left enough in there to look realistic. A bit of food, bucket of fuel. Grab that, she said, pointing at the juice. What for? You're bringing it with you, your tools too. I reached for the nail gun, panic coming over me. I tried to pull the gun up, pointed at her, but the pirate just crushed a knee in my chest and I felt my arms go floppy. She grabbed the gun off the ground and shoved it at my arm, lodged a nail there so fast I'd no time to scream. I staggered back, fell. The pain surged through me like my arm had caught fire. My body, my body writhed in the dust. The pirate girl snatched me up with one hand, grabbed my bag of tools with the other, and then she dragged me across the road to the back of her truck, my heels scraping through the dirt, my arm ready to explode. I just stared back at my wagon, and for some reason the worst of it was that hatch left hanging wide open, the car filling up with sand like the wagon had rolled its last mile and the world was telling me that nothing lasts forever. Nothing, Banyan, least of all you.
I want to read mine with an accent too. <laughs> Um, my book is Struck, and it's a little bit of a, a departure as far as dystopians go because it has a supernatural twist that my character is addicted to lightning and has given her a kind of superpower, if you will. Um, so, but I'm, gonna, I'm cheating. I'm going to read you the prologue, and she kind of just tells you what the situation is, um, Ferris Bueller style, so I don't even have to tell you anything about the book. When you've been struck by lightning as many times as I have, you start to expect the worst pretty much all the time. You never know when that jagged scrawl of white fire, charged with a hundred million volts of electricity, might blaze down from the sky and find its mark on you. Sear a hole like a bullet right through you or turn your hair to ash. Maybe leave your skin blackened to a crisp or stop your heart. Make you blind or deaf or both. Sometimes lightning plays with you a little, lifts you into the air and drops you 20 yards away, blows your shoes off or flash fries the clothes from your body, leaving you naked and steaming in the rain. Lightning could wipe the last few hours or days from your memory or overload your brain, short-circuiting your personality and rendering you a completely different person. I heard about a woman who was struck by lightning and cured of terminal cancer, a paraplegic who was given the ability to walk again. Sometimes lightning strikes you, but it's the person standing next to you who ends up in the hospital, or the morgue. Any of that could happen, or none of it, or something else no one's ever heard of. The thing about lightning is, you never know what it's going to do to you. Lightning could turn you into some kind of freakish human battery, storing up energy, leaving you with a persistent feeling that any day now you're going to spontaneously combust, like a bomb is going to go off inside you and do well, what bombs do best? Or maybe that's just me. My name is Mia Price, and I am a human lightning rod. Do they make a support group for that? They should, and let me tell you why. My name is Mia Price, and I am a lightning addict. There, now you know the truth. I want lightning to find me. I crave it like lungs crave oxygen. There's nothing that makes you feel more alive than being struck. Unless, of course, it kills you. It does that to me from time to time, which is why I moved to Los Angeles. As the song says, it never rains in Southern California. But the song also says, when it pours, it pours. The song is right. My name is Mia Price, and it's been one year since my last strike. But that doesn't mean I've stopped expecting the worst. Lightning only strikes a handful of times in LA every year. The problem is, I traded thunderstorms for earthquakes. One earthquake in particular the one that changed the city and my life forever. That day, the day of the worst natural disaster to hit the United States, oh, pretty much ever, it rained. Actually, it poured. So you can see we've got a variety of things there. Um, I'm not going to read from my short story that's in After. Uh, I'll just let you know that it's a short story about a genetic apocalypse um, uh, where uh, uh, the food is no longer digestible by humans. Um, <laughs> 
but <laughs> yeah, the food is terrible. <laughs> but there's a really uh, this book. It's uh, it's an anthology of uh, it's I think 16 YA authors um, uh, who have written stories that uh, YA short stories that take place after an apocalypse, and we all had to pick a different apocalyptic scenario. So it's it's all different apocalypses. But Terry Windling and Ellen Datlow, who uh, edited this anthology, and they do a great job editing amazing anthologies. Um, they wrote an introduction, and I thought it would be really interesting to read the sort of two paragraphs that define uh, dystopian literature for us to start off our conversation with. So um, this is what they have to say. To some folks, including most YA publishers, dislit is a broad, inclusive genre of tales that take place in darkly imagined futures, ranging from stories that explore the dangers of repressive governments and societies gone bad to books whose plots unfold in bleak, savage, or oppressive post-apocalyptic settings. In this usage, the dislit label conveys more about a story's overall tone than its plotline or subtext of societal critique. The worlds depicted are dark ones, in which Protagonists must struggle for physical and or moral survival. Other folks, including most literary critics, reach back to the classical def definition of dystopian literature, which is far more specific, tales of utopias gone wrong. In this view, post-apocalyptic novels are dystopian only if the narrower definition applies. Otherwise, they are a genre of their own, albeit one that is closely related and read by many of the same readers. Quote, in a dystopian story, writes John Joseph Adams, editor of Brave New World Dystopian Stories, an excellent collection of traditionally dystopian fiction, society itself is typically a Society itself is typically the antagonist. It is society that is actively working against the protagonist's aims and desires. Now, this may be true in some post-apocalyptic tales, but it's certainly not true in all of them. For many take place in post-disaster settings where human society has broken down altogether. To dystopian purists, such books do not belong on dislit lists. So I just thought that would be a good place for us to start our discussion. And um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you uh, is what, uh, what, what is dystopia to you guys? I feel like I should be singing, what is dystopia to me? Um, I, I actually agree with that, that most of the books out there that we're calling dislit is probably the dumbest term I've ever heard. It, it sounds like where you talk bad about your mama. But um, the dystopia, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming you. I'm blaming society, which makes this a dystopian conversation. Um, my concern, I guess, I think most of the stuff out there now that's being called dystopian to me is just speculative fiction or what we called sci-fi in the old days and and um, I because it implies that this is a utopia and then you changed something and I'm like I'm sorry who here votes that this is utopia I mean our standards have dropped miserably but I, uh, Given that, uh, it seems like it's the adversity issue and the darkness. I think there's, there was a, you know, I mean, there's a lot of YA out there that is purely a romance or a comedy and the idea that it's set in the future and we're not telling kids that it's rosy is what seems to be making it dystopian literature today. It's, uh, we're telling the truth. Well, and Jennifer, I think it's interesting. Maybe you can take this question next because you were saying your book actually has some fantastical elements, and I would actually say that your book does as well, um, which is not strictly dystopia in the traditional sense that, 
that they're talking about the critiquers. What did it say? Um, <laughs> do you want to? Can you? Do you want to make that about that? Yeah, I didn't know that mine was dystopian until it was published. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, I belong in a genre. Um, but I, you know, I think a lot of the time, like dystopian for me is often about, um, you know, people trying to, they, they provide a solution for a problem and the solution ends up being worse than the problem itself and it builds and it builds and it snowballs. And so, you know, that can be post-apocalyptic, um, you know, like in my book, it's, it involves a lot of doomsday cults and, you know, they're trying to help people, but they're not really helping people. They're making it worse. Um, so for me, uh, dystopian, you know, needs to have that element of like, we're, we're trying to make it better, but it's just gone horribly wrong. Yeah, I would, um, I would say the same thing as far as the, you know, the labeling dystopian. Also, actually, when I wrote Rootless, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about genre at all. I didn't even think of it as as young adult. I just had the idea, and I thought the main character would be 17. And so then my agent said, "Oh, it's young adult, and it's dystopian. This is this, this you know it's this thing." And I, and I, you know, so, so, of course, you know, so, <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, I um, and and I really wrote it to be um, a fantastical tale. And I think when it, people do label it dystopian, then sometimes people read it thinking um, you know it is it is this world with with something changed and and that can be a limiting thing I think if you read it um, because you know it's it's a uh, it's a story and, and I think it should be uh, you know to go go to wild places not just sort of well what would logically happen if you um, you know created that thing wrong you know with this world but I think that's kind of what a dystopian is I guess and that's why it gets labeled as such is that there is something wrong with the world very clearly wrong and people are um, fighting against it trying to survive in it or trying to change it and I think that's why um, it's a popular genre because uh, you basically take a world where there's something very clearly wrong and you have people who are usually trying to change that and so I think that even though it's sort of a dark genre sometimes um, it's really a uh, it can be a very positive one because it's and I think people identify with it because they think you know the world that we live in maybe they think there are things wrong with it and they would like to try to change that so it's sort of uh, I think that at its heart you know that's what a dystopian can be um, people trying to change the world and make it a better place you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stag this because listening to this, it makes me think that The Wizard of Oz is dystopian. Mm -hmm. But who would ever say that it is? You know, and and that's interesting. But it is. I mean, we presumably Oz was a a, a blissful place before the Wicked Witches. So yeah. we've changed history by creating disfiction. I, I, I've always sort of felt like one of the things that's a real marker of um, dystopian is that uh, the protagonist usually um, thinks that everything is fine in their world and then sort of awakens to a larger world where they realize that there's sort of bigger bigger machinations that are happening because either it's a utopia that is not quite as good as they thought because something horrible is happening or that something horrible has happened and that, you know, that like uh, the, the status quo is no longer that, you know... Um, um, uh, 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 acceptable. It's like dystopia is utopia at a price that's too high. Right. 
Um, okay, so now I was saying before about how I know for me, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, so I was obsessed with uh, post-apocalyptic fiction then um, because of the Cold War that was happening back then. Um, and uh, so I'm just curious to know what was the first, what was your first encounter with sort of a, di what was your first dystopian books that you loved? For me, I'm going to say I loved Logan's Run. That was one of my faves. Uh, and then I also loved uh, a middle grade series called uh, The Tripod Trilogy um, by John Christopher, which is really great if you haven't read it. I, you know, I don't know that I, I liked dystopian fiction. Probably the first thing I had to read was 1984 and right, Brave New World, and, and I did not like either of those oh, at yeah. all. I was just like, no, wine doesn't taste like blackberry jam. And, um, you know, I just found it to be sort of nauseating. And it's interesting you say Logan's Run because, like, that movie, I did not read the book, the movie scared the tar out of me. I'll use the <laughs> proper words. That's not the proper word either, but um, yeah, I found that all very upsetting. I was definitely like a high fantasy, send me some elves and let me be an archer and, and life is grand. I was like, nuke it, let's survive. No, and I'm like, the crystals can save it. <laughs> um, I, well, I grew up in England and I used to get, um, I used to buy with 2000 AD with my pocket money, the comic, mm -hmm. comic book. Judge Dredd is the kind of their lead, almost famous character, but the, it's sort of a serialized, you know, different characters um, split up into different characters and you, you get each time and there's sort of an update for each story and it's, it's really wildly awesome and super imaginative. And so I grew, grew up reading that a lot. Um, and a lot of those stories, Judge Dredd in particular is, you know, the dystopian um, literature, um, as far as the written word with, without the help of pictures. Um, the first one that I really fell in love with and still one of my favorites is Fahrenheit 451, um, which is, it checks all the boxes, I think, of however you want to define dystopia. You know, that's, that's a really classic example. Um, and, you know, he used the story in order to say a lot of different things to a lot of different people about the world that we do live in and the world that we lived in then. So that's a real favorite of mine. Has anyone read The Long Walk? It's a Richard Bachman. Um, it's Stephen King, I mean, but I call him Richard Bachman because that's what it says on the, on the book. But it's a novella um, about a walking contest. And it's sort of like The Hunger Games, but with just walking. And I read this when I was maybe like 10 years old. And I think that was my first, like, wow, I can completely see this happening. This appeals to my innate pessimism toward the world and you know the idea that like people would enter a walking contest where if they stop walking they get shot but if they can keep walking until the end they win lots of money uh, I think I could see like you know game shows kind of heading that direction at that time and I, you know I have this recipe for um, dystopia which is like pessimism plus, plus um, plausibility plus paranoia <laughs> the three P's um, and that you know it hit all those marks for me and uh, I still, I'm haunted by that. I haven't read it in, you know, 20 years, but it's, it's stuck. Well, I think this brings me, I'm just going to talk, and you, you guys should feel free to cross-talk, because I like the problem. This should be like we're having a, 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 a cosmopolitan, and uh, everyone else is just uh, eavesdropping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this brings me to, I mean, uh, dystopian, uh, maybe I'll take this, we're actually... 
Um, uh, one of the things about dystopian literature is that it's very popular with kids and, uh, you know, with, with young adults, which is why we're here. Um, but when we were growing up, like if you talk about a book like The Long Walk or if you talk about uh, Brave New World 1984 or Fahrenheit 451, Logan's Run, those are not books that were written for young people. Those are adult books. And I've always had this theory that before there was a real young adult section, um, kids would go to science fiction uh, as a bridge to adult literature because that was where the sort of these sophisticated ideas would come for the first time. And um, I'm just wondering, why do you think that dystopian literature is so popular with young people? Do you have any thoughts? I have thoughts, but do you have any thoughts? Sorry, no, I'm just I'm mixing it up. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's because... Uh, I snatched the microphone. Now I'm pausing. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's because um, w when when you're a kid, a teenager, adolescent, um, and perhaps even when you're older, you often look at the the world and and you see something that is perhaps oppressive or the, the something that you don't you don't just want to become a part of that. Um, and I think that many people feel that way maybe all their lives, but I think it's a very common thing to feel um, during adolescence that there's, you know, oh, I'm going to sort of become part of this system and I'm going to get sort of plugged in and I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to have to be like my parents and like my teachers and this adult and I'm going to have to sort of play this game. And I think it's uh, tempting to think, that you don't want to do that. You want to rebel against that in some way, change things in some way, um, instead of just sort of being absorbed into it. And I think a lot of dystopians, uh, in a way, can be a metaphor for that. You know, there's this society that these people live in, and they think it's all fine and everything, but it's really not. And then perhaps the uh, protagonist, is, you know, in some way, is trying to rebel against that or change that in some way, or at least has their eyes open to, um, you know, what, what is wrong with it. So that's that's why I think it's a uh, it, it connects with adolescents as well as others. Wrestle it back yeah. from you. Um, I win. I think <laughs> that um, my simple answer is we've been at war for more than 10 years. And war in a society always changes the literature in the society. It is why we have zombie stories now. It seems to be things like Frankenstein and Richard Matheson uh, in uh, the I Am Legend collection, he has a story about the loop loopies, which is an, an, an atomic sort of created zombie. And the, the, there's stories that happen after war to sort of explain the wounded soldier coming home. And, um, and kids know, you knew growing up with, um, you know, like hiding under your desk yeah. because of the atomic bomb and the nuclear war, that things were not all right. And so the books that tell you, hey look, in this world things aren't right either, but there's a way to figure it out. It's kids want to know what's really going on and you get the sense your parents aren't telling you and these books are willing to tell you. And you know, we, a lot of kids out there have a military loved ones, you know, people out there fighting and they're trying to understand what's going on. And, um, and even if you don't have anybody in the military, you, you can't, and we, you know, we haven't had a war on on our soil in forever, with the exception of the of 9/11, which is huge, and that defines an era. And I think that because the books aren't being written by the kids, they're being read by the kids, but they're being written by people like us who lived through the Cold War and are freaked out about the the hot and cold war that's going on now. I think I think you're right. I think that like 9/11 and um, and the Cold War, you know, sort of, uh, you know, there was like a little uh, respite 
a little little well for yeah a little reprieve for a while and then and then 9/11 happened and I think that there's like this big uh, big anxiety that's come back and I think that it's a way that um, kids try to sort of figure out how to yeah. deal with these big big ideas that, uh, and loss of control um, I, I want to go to you Jen but I also want to ask about um, high school because I think that like high school is a dystop is a you know is a kind of oppressive society as well and I think that that's one of the reasons why kids can relate to dystopias so well is because there are these rules and there's you know uniformity and like you know everybody maybe you're not allowed to wear short skirts or I don't know right. what happens in high school anymore but you know those kinds of things and I think that that sort of helps um, for uh, kids to really understand the framework of a dystopian society. What do you guys think about that? Yeah? Um, well, in mine, I, there's a breakdown of society and, um, you know, I think that's the fun thing about the, the alternate, um, the other side of dystopian is that, you know, you get like post-apocalyptic where there is really very little order and it shows kind of this is what happens when you don't have any control. Um, so that was something that I wanted to explore because I'm a rebellious person and I was a rebellious kid and, you know, if you, I mean, I guess all kids should be a little oppressed, you know, like we should, they should not have complete freedom. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, but I think um, for me, with why kids relate to it so much right now, uh, with you know a lot of the stories that are coming out, it's also the idea that they can do something about the status quo, um, and that they're not powerless. It, it, you know, in a in a high school society like in a high school utopia or dystopia, uh, what can you do? Like, how can you change that world? It's just it's just the world. But um, you know, in a lot of these stories, like the Hunger Games and and the adventurous. Um, the adventurous aspect of it, like being a hero in that world, I think really appeals to kids and, and kind of wakes them up to, like maybe I should be thinking about this, maybe I should do something earlier on, maybe I should change my way of thinking early on in life. Yeah, I think awakening is like a big thing that happens sort of in, 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 dystopian, um, in, in dystopian books where the, the characters awaken to things. Um, in your book, Jen, um, the, uh, the, the character is awakened to a sort of larger a larger idea of, of the world because this uh, this big storm has happened and like you know something bigger is, uh, could possibly happen on the horizon. But um, I'm interested with both of you because Cherie and our stories are more rooted in real science and real sort of like um, you know like it is the extrapolation yeah. you were talking about. If this happened in right. our world, what what yeah. comes next? Yeah, and yours have both of yours have more fantastical elements too. Though. I mean, your your science is not one hundred percent correct. Science fiction. Mine totally yeah. is though. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that really, I find that interesting because uh, that that makes for an interesting conversation in terms of like you know there are different traditions of sort of that speculative side of things. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, you know, and so I, I'm curious as to how much research you did in your world building when you were building your lightning world, your your treeless uh, slash genetic situation, you know, and then, you know, in terms of your, uh, you know, blood stuff and plague, and then, uh, you know, with my uh, Monsanto, uh, you know, genetic corn situation, which we have in common. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have corn in common. Yeah. 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 We are mostly corn now, isn't that the, like, I'm 99% corn. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, with, uh, you know, part of why I wanted to do a fantastical kind of story was because 
I wanted there to be a wish fulfillment. Are we giving up on the microphone? Should I just? Okay, I will talk into the microphone. Um, you know, I wanted to have like a wish fulfillment element because dystopians can be so depressing, and so I wanted to have this kind of heroic character with a comic book sort of power, um, so that it, you like even though the whole world is crashing down around her, you kind of want to be her. Um, you kind of want to go through this and, and be a hero too. Um, but uh, as far as the research goes, I. It actually was pretty valid, um, all but, you know, I, I stretched things, obviously, as far as what lightning can do, but that was the, the nice thing about choosing lightning is that people don't really understand it and they don't really know what it can do, so I can pretend that it can do all sorts of things that nobody can really prove me wrong. Um, and, you know, all of the earthquake stuff, like, as far as lightning causing the earthquake, nobody can prove that that isn't a possibility. But, um, you know, all the lightning, the, the details about uh, the earthquake and how it would go down in L.A. were pretty valid. The, uh, the fault line that, that, you know, causes the earthquake is a real fault line that goes beneath um, downtown L.A. And, and the way that the city falls apart in pieces, in bits and pieces, it's, that's how it would fall apart because the sediment is different in different areas. So some areas, like this area might be destroyed while, you know, Silver Lake might be fine. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> um, but yeah, I tried to be as accurate as possible and then take it wherever I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't worry too much about scientific accuracy. Um, I thought that might get in the way of, of it being a good story because I, 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 my initial concept wasn't Oh, I want to write something, um, you know, that's a dystopian. So, you know, how can I, you know, come up with a story? My initial concept was just that I was in Colorado, surrounded by loads and loads of dead trees, because there's these beetles that are eating a lot of the lodgepole pine trees, which are, you know, cover the um, western part of the state. And I just looked at all these dead trees and thought, wow, what if there was, you know, if there were no trees? And I just thought some, you know, people would build them out of metal as a, as a way to try to remember them, like old scrap. And I just, I had the image, I, I, you know, I'm visual. And so I had the image of someone building the trees out of metal and scrap. And then I thought, yeah, they're in this dusty world where only corn can grow. and Everything else has been wiped out by these locusts. And my mind just went with the story versus with the science. And so in the book, everything's been wiped out by these locusts that now feed on human flesh. And so it's, uh, it's a fantastical story, not a, uh, yeah, you know, it's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be a textbook. Um, and so, um, you know, I really wanted to write a story about where something important has been lost and is missing and someone goes to try to find it because I love those um, types of stories. So yeah, I didn't, um, I wanted it to make sense within the rules of the world, but I didn't need it to make sense within the rules of our world. That wasn't important to me. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, yeah, it, it was um, it was you know le led by my, my imagination versus you know how how can I sort of you know some people have uh, some people connect with the environmental themes which there are you know in in the book um, some people love that it has or seems to, or they interpret it as having an anti-GMO message and then other people um, take great offense that they think it has this anti-GMO message particularly because they say you know well the, you know there wouldn't be these flesh-eating locusts and 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 so you you know you're attacking these these companies by saying there's going to be these flesh-eating locusts and that just wouldn't possibly happen and you know it's a story not 
a, uh, a statement, you know, so. That's just their fear of flesh-eating locusts talking. Right, right, right. I mean, it's like the lightning thing. It's like, prove me wrong. <laughs> prove me wrong. Now, I, I wish I had brought my glasses because I'd be wearing them now and pushing them up and saying, well, um, as the daughter of, of a research librarian and a scientist, I did my research. And um, so the world of Orleans, it is a post-disaster New Orleans. Um, a series of natural and man-made disasters have wreaked such devastation along the Gulf Coast that, um, and given rise to a really virulent disease called Delta Fever that um, the United States government has built a quarantine wall from Florida to Texas and basically disavowed that part of the country. And, um, and so my story takes place about 50 years after the wall went up. The survivors in New Orleans have gone tribal based on blood type because in an attempt to um, stave off the spread of the disease, they found that it affected different blood types differently. And if blood types stuck with blood type, um, it was less likely to spread. And so now you're in a world where um, O-type blood um, does not, you can carry the disease, but it's not as debilitating as if you're an AB, an A or a B type. And so the ABs hunt people for their blood because they need constant transfusions. Um, I, I had the idea, um, the, the whole story kind of came out of my mother was a Katrina survivor and um, I wanted to write about New Orleans and what had happened down there. I read an article about gangs protecting their territory when the police ran away and um, that stuck with me and my mom was stuck down in the city for uh, a week after the storm and she was an older lady, diabetic, running out of insulin and it was the looters that gave her um, water to drink and enough to make it through until we could get her evacuated and so um, those were the things that were in my mind when I came up with the story and um, there was a lot of talk about the sort of toxicity of the storm surge and what was in the water. And my mom, in fact, um, um, came down with an infection shortly after we got her out of New Orleans because she'd been stuck in the flood water at one point. And so I called a friend of mine who's a doctor and said, and she's great for any time you want a disease. I'd be like, is there something that can do this to people? <laughs> and she's like, oh, you should talk to um, you should talk to this guy I know who does blood disease in pediatrics and so I went and had a disgusting but fascinating lunch with uh, this guy Dr. Noah Fetterman at UCLA and I was like okay I need a disease that could do this and this and this and he would walk me through like well this is possible that's not possible and I was like great what are the symptoms is there something that makes you shake I want people to shake and we, and I came home with this giant list of things and then I created this virus and then I called um, my one of my best friends she's my matron of honor at my wedding and she's a biology teacher in Chicago and I was like Alice I've got this disease and it does this and this and this, um, how do I destroy it? And she was like, Cherie, you shouldn't be using that with students. And I was like, oh no, no, it's in a book. And she's like, well, that's really dangerous and it doesn't sound safe at all. And I was like, that's the point. And then she taught me how to destroy it. And then I was like, if I want to cure it, what do I do? And this is, it helps to have friends. Her sister is a research scientist. And so I got to talk to her kid's sister and I'm like, so I've got this thing and I want this to happen. And she taught me how to retro engineer viruses from the inside out. And um, 
I cannot do any of this in real life, but for the purposes of the book, I, you know, I wanted it to be as plausible as possible. I mean, there's still certainly flights of fantasy. Would this really happen? Maybe, maybe not. But um, but what's been interesting is to have. Um, uh, I saw somebody comment the other day on a on a blog. Um, you know, I'm a science major, and I was impressed. <laughs> And I was like, that's right, because it's scarier when you think, wow, that could actually happen. So um, that's me and my science. And then as far as like the um, sort of the layout of the land, much like you, you looked at where the fault lines were in Los Angeles and what could happen, um, I, there are some amazing flood maps of New Orleans that um, the Times-Picayune had this thing that was a time lapse of Katrina, and it showed you the landscape before and then at the height of the floodwaters, what was left standing and what was still above water and what was submerged. And so I looked at flood plans for the next 50 years out, which do exist, and sort of went from there with, like, what would this look like? So... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm the daughter of scientists. My dad's a neurobiologist. My mom's a genetic engineer. So when I was doing a genetic apocalypse, I just called up my mom. Ding-a-ling-ling. Hey, hey. But um, I got, I was struck, and uh, maybe you can talk about this because we have the corn thing in common. Um, the... Uh, 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 the, I, I read this article about um, this Monsanto corn that um, w nobody really talked about it, but it was grown in uh, South Africa somewhere, and um, it looked really healthy. Everything looked really great. It was beautiful. Like the field was amazing. And then when they went to harvest the corn, they opened it up, and there were only the white cones and no kernels on the on the um, on the on the corn. And I just thought, like, wow, that is messed up. Like, what happened if like there was just no food? You know. Or what if we couldn't digest it, or whatever? And I, and I just sort of went from there, and um, and you know, the, like with my story, the marker, it's like everything is true that c it could actually happen. We could all of a sudden develop mutations where we can't digest food anymore. And I thought that was super, super scary. That like you know, all of a sudden you couldn't do that. But I think the nice thing is that it doesn't really matter whether or not something is based in you know sort of the truth, or if it's got a fantastical element that it springs out of, because I think that the stories, they, there's something about each of them that capture your imagination. You know, what if there were no trees? What if lightning gave you this power? What if you know, uh, New Orleans you know, was walled off? What if we couldn't digest food anymore? And just think about any other, you know, dystopia that, that, that you love to read that, you know, that's got the, that, that sort of hook into it. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that dystopian literature has evolved? Like, what are some of your favorite um, you know, uh, dystopian books that are out now, and do you think it's evolved from, let's say, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, Logan's Run? I'm going to pass this on because I don't really, I don't like dystopian <laughs> fiction. I was just writing speculative fiction, and I, I, I um, yeah, I have a hard time answering that, so I'm going to pass it. Um, yeah, I think, well, it's hard because it's labeled, you know, it's, you're, you're breaking things down and, and labeling them. Uh, I don't know if it's evolved. I, I guess if it's evolved, it's, it's evolved to be um, such a broad genre, you know, which is kind of what we're, what we're saying. You know, initially there were, there were these sort of, you know, half dozen classic books that people thought of as dystopian, and now there's books, you know, some people might even call The Road by Cormac McCarthy a dystopian novel, and some other people would say, you know, as you said in the... 
Well, and, and like you said in the, the what you read, you know, yeah. they said that that's you know, people would say no, that's not dystopian, you know, that, um, and I'd agree with that, you know. So there's that, it, it sort of branches out into the post-apocalyptic, you know, and it's not really a dystopian. But then people would say, yeah, but it's a bad future, so it's dystopian. So it's it. Um, I, I guess it's evolved to become just a really broad, wide genre with loads of different, almost like it's like saying something science fiction or something's a romance. You know, if you say, oh, it's a dystopian, that doesn't give you that much information to me. Um, you know, it, it could mean all sorts of things. Um, I don't know if it's evolved to be, you know, better, and, uh, but it's broader. You know, I mean, it makes me think that dystopian is, is just sort of a relabeling of science fiction of certain sorts of science fiction because sci-fi became such a geek-related genre that it wasn't cool to read sci-fi if you were not me. And, um, and as a result, they're like, well, how do we sell this now? Because like, I used to get hopping mad at literary novels that were actually science fiction. I'm like, Children of Men, that's science fiction. You know, The Handmaiden's da uh, Tale, that, that's science fiction. They're like, no, it's literature. Yeah. And I'm like, F you, it's all literature. And F stands for fiction and fantasy. <laughs> I would argue that it has evolved um, because I think it's more hopeful now, um, especially because it's so huge in, in the young adult market and I think you can't have a completely hopeless ending at the end of a young adult novel because kids apparently don't like that. Um, so I think, and I think that's good. I think that also ties in with what I was saying before about, you know, they can, they can affect change, like they can do something about it. Um, and so that is part of the hope, like you're not completely powerless. Um, but I would say as far as like things, books that I love right now, um, Little Brother by Cory Doctorow, which I think is one of the best young adult novels I've ever read in my life. Um, it's so good. But it's, you know, it takes place in San Francisco after a, a terrorist attack on the city and a, a teenage hacker is in the wrong place at the wrong time, gets taken in by Homeland Security and is basically tortured and then watched, like set free and said, don't tell anyone what we did, um, we're watching you for the rest of your life. And it's so plausible, it just felt so real, but it was fun at the same time, it was a fun book, and an emotional book. And you know, at the end, I was also left feeling a little hopeful. So that, I don't think I, I got that from you know, books like Fahrenheit 451 or 1984. Well, I, I, I kind of I wonder if that's the difference just between YA and adult um, in that respect because yeah it's like all the adult versions end with a bullet in the head and that's like <laughs> as lucky as you and that's lucky you know that's a happy um, yeah it's like there's no escape, the escape. whereas that is the escape it's like well you could always die yeah. but um, you make me think when you said little brother it made me think of feed. Oh yeah, M.D. Anderson, um, which is, which I think actually is a dystopian novel because it takes place in our future where everybody um, basically has the internet built into their brains and it's the feed and you're constantly on the feed and yes, there's still pop-up ads, um, but it is the story of a boy who falls in love with a girl who 
her father didn't want her to have the feed, so she got a substandard version of it late in life that is causing her issues. They're all on, they're all at a rave party on and the moon. And turned off for a moment. It's the first time that he does it. Because they're it. infected by a virus that cuts everybody off for a while, and then they sort of connect while they're cut off because they're all in the hospital together. And, and, and he then awakens to the world being messed seeing, up. Yeah, and he real, sees it for what it is. So that's it, because he was in a utopia where literally if you wanted a pair of jeans, it would drift by your vision and you'd say buy that and they'd show up at your house and um, and the ultra disturbing filet mignon farm yeah. um, was just hedges of meat because that's like your corn it's um, uh, the way we grow food and yeah. um, that I think is a brilliant book that is a dystopian novel and, and I read it many years after it came out and I thought Oh, thank God, somebody's finally written this book, The World's Gonna Change. And then I looked at the copyright and I was like, ah, oh, nuts. <laughs> People, reread this book. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I think is super interesting about uh, dystopia, too, and just like you were saying, Chris, that um, the, you know, it's sort of this blanket statement for a lot of different kinds of uh, things, but there are these real niche ones. One thing that I've noticed a lot at the LA Review of Books, I keep getting all of these books that are reproductive dystopias, you know, um, uh, Promised by Kara M. O'Brien, uh, uh, Eve uh, by Anna Carey, uh, there's a million more that I'm blanking on, Bumped, bumped. Uh, anyway, um, and I'm, I wonder whether or not when you were talking about war and about how war sort of infuses, uh, you know, our distress, uh, you know, and anxiety in our, um, in our dystopian science fiction, speculative fiction, that like uh, there's so many multiples that are being born now, so much uh, reproductive technology, and I wondered whether or not maybe that had, you know, sort of infused itself into dystopian. Do you see any other trends like that in dystopia at all? environment maybe? I mean, uh, the environment yeah. is yeah. obviously is a really big one, environmental. It's interesting because the reproductive thing has been around for a really long time and I remember coming up with a reproductive dystopian novel when I was like in my early, early 20s and um, now that I'm in my um, early gentle 40s. Um, <laughs> It's interesting because I think it, it reflects what's happening to the to the writers. Right. And there are all these women who basically, like there's a million multiples now because everybody put off having a kid and now science is making clones in, right. us, in us. And um, and so it's interesting to see that reflected and, and then the environment and I don't know what else is out there yeah. that is, I mean, well food, food. Is, is a big food. thing but that's right. sort of right. environmental. Well and storms, you know, you both have yeah, storms. Yeah. Yeah. getting worse. Yeah, I think the environmental thing is big. I think it um, leads to some, often more the maybe what people would call post-apocalyptic versus you know a true dystopian because it's sort of like the apocalypse has happened, like the world has ended, and the reason that everything went wrong is because of the environment. Often it's maybe b triggered because of human you know interference, or, you know global warming or something. But sometimes it's just you know the the environment you know. We reached a tipping point, it broke, and now everything's broken and terrible. But I think oftentimes, like when there's like a post apocalyptic situation, a catastrophic situation, society, a lot of times in dystopias, society has tried to rebuild and to adapt. Into that, into yeah. Adapt into that, and then there's kind of trouble. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking maybe we should open up, uh, you know, I think we're getting towards the end here, but maybe open it up if anybody has any comments or questions. Charles! Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, okay. <laughs> There's a number of uh, things you guys have said tonight that are absolutely brilliant and talked all the way around the question that I wanted to ask. <laughs> but uh, the one thing I just wanted to point out, I wanted to ask if you guys had any opinion about um, 
why this stuff has become the purview of YA fiction. For instance, like if we, you guys have just spent a few minutes discussing like what does it mean to be dystopian or, or what qualifies as dystopian, uh, why has it changed and become dystopian for young adults. One of the things I wanted, to, as an example, all the way back in the 1940s, one of the earliest examples of this was a short story written by Robert Heinlein called, I think it was called Blow Ups Happen, which was one of the earliest examples of a story about a nuclear disaster, an atomic disaster. And it might actually qualify as one of the earliest examples of dystopian fiction, the idea of uh, man's technology getting beyond his capabilities. And the, 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 uh, the whole um, cyberpunk genre in the 1980s uh, which was the Godfather, of course, was okay, Dick, but then it was brought about by John Schoenberg, Sterling, and, and Wayne Gibson, has dominated science fiction for the last like 25 years, right? The question I have is like, in the face of all this, in the face of like the fact that dystopian literature has been around not only in the classics of 1984 and 1941, but has been part of science fiction, speculative fiction for the entire 20th century, and um, um, anyway, so. Given that, if that's the case, then why is it that this kind of literature has now suddenly become, in the last uh, six or seven years, or ten years, let's say, the purview of YA fiction? Why is it that the, the tropes, the basic tropes of science fiction have now become part of YA fiction? Uh, of course, now I ask this, and I, I think you guys have already, to some extent, I think you did, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> Also that, and I think it really does have to do with awakening. You know, I mean, like the, the awakening. awakening, awakening to bigger ideas. And I think that one of the things about young adult fiction is it's the first time. Uh, the, the great thing about young adult fiction is that the characters, it's the first time that they're experiencing anything. The first time they're experiencing love, uh, you know, anger, you know, uh, uh, betrayal, whatever it yeah, is. But this and isn't it, the first generation. No, it's, it's not. Okay. But I think that's mm -hmm. why that's why it's so popular. That's why it lends itself so easily to being written in YA because because it's uh, the the protagonists are the protagonists are beginning to awaken to the the idea of a larger world and in you know teenagers are awakening to that idea as well and i think that's why it's it it, 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 it was in ya 20 years ago well that's the, so my well Forcing that stuff into that genre? I th I'm going to jump in because yeah, I do have an opinion here. I do think, A, you have to look at the writers. Um, I mean, I was reading adult science fiction when I was a teenager, and it was my goal to grow up and write science fiction, and here I am. I do think that YA is, it has become sort of a, a secret clubhouse for adults that don't want to read about the bullet in the head stories. Um, so they're reading YA because, like, the adults want some hope, too. And, like, they've got that new young what's the oh, new adult new, no 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 I want to bring it up because like there's a new genre called new adult which is for older teens like it so it covers your 18 to 20 something year old it is um, BS which stands for bad science and it is um, but they're trying to come they're trying to come up with new genres so there's more stuff to sell. I do think science fiction um, because it's considered a genre that a lot of people look down on quite frankly um, it's shunted to the side and YA became popular with Harry Potter it became okay for adults to read it too so now they're like well what else and can the, we and the, Hunger Games. and the Hunger Games and what else can you get published basically it's like um, and uh, also because there wasn't YA before Charles there like there was there was you would go 
from middle grade to adult fiction, but yeah. oftentimes you would move, you know, into genre fiction. You'd go mystery, you do your Agatha Christie, yeah. you do your Absolutely. your science fiction, and you do your uh, your romance, a little Thornburg. Yeah, action, before you, know? you moved into yeah. So just so everyone knows, like young adult literature didn't exist until The Outsiders. Yeah. And what year did that, was that published? Seventy something. Early 70s? I thought, okay. Early 70s. So we've had 30 or 40 years of, um, of actual young adult fiction and coincidentally we're 30 or 40 years old up here. So it's, uh, it's growing. It's going to keep changing. Other questions? Does anybody? Yes, over here. Um, I have a question. If, so since half of you at least found your books to be in this defined dystopia, and then maybe you were not a big fan of it, um, are, you, are you happy to be <laughs> put into this category? <laughs> yes, I, I'm fine with it because people understand it. I, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of my life trying to explain to people whatever it is I'm doing, like, no, 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 well, this is what it is. And now that I've written something that there's this label to it, people instantly go, oh, it's dystopian. And I'm like, yeah, and that's great. Do you guys feel like that? Yeah. No, I, I don't like it at all. Um, really? Yeah, I don't like any of the any of the labels really. I think um, I think it's limiting. I think um, I mean I don't I don't like lie awake at night thinking you know, oh, I can't believe they called it dystopian. Um, but I feel like you know if if you say it's uh, dystopian or science fiction or fantasy or um, you know, it's, it's, it's like judging a book by its cover. You know, pe people have a reaction before they even started to read it of what it should be or what it shouldn't be or if they're going to like it or if they're not going to like it or what they expect from it or want from it. And to me, it's, it's so much more than, you know, a, a label. You know, it's a story. So I feel like, um, you know, I, I don't say to people it's a, you know, it's a dystopian. I, I try to describe, if I, if I have the time, I try to describe what it's about. And, and um, same with it being, you know, a young adult. I didn't write it for, you know, a particular age group. I wrote it for anyone who would want to read it to read it, I guess. So, yeah, so I don't, um, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I think it's, you know, it's like, I, I don't like, I guess, the classification thing. It's, uh, to me, that's not what it, stories, they're not supposed to be classified. It's like, it's like breaking down music and saying, oh, this is, this is rock, and, but this is pop, and this is, you know, and it's, it's like, what's the, I don't know, what's the point, I guess. <laughs> then it's like alt-rock or folk-rock or whatever. You know. um, but yeah, it's frustrating when, you know, if, you're, if you are dystopian and they're like, well, I just, I just barely read a dystopian novel, so I don't want to read another one right now. Or it's good if people are like, I just read one and I loved it. And I want to read more. So there, there are pluses and minuses. Um, but I usually, I say mine's post-apocalyptic with a supernatural twist. Um, just because it makes it sound like a cocktail or something, you know. <laughs> um, or I will compare it to something else because uh, it does get, like a lot of dystopian novels are, um, you know, people will think like George Orwell or something like that. And they're like, well, I like that. But, you know, do I want to read that? Like for fun, for funsy time. Like, do they want to read that? <laughs> so, I, I, I'm so-so on being categorized. You had a question over here? Um, it's maybe controversial. Because this is like dislit or speculative fiction, do you think it gives permission 
for you to create a strong female protagonist. So if you think the strong female protagonist for young adults is here to stay, even if it's not speculative or dislike. Because I've noticed this evolution more and more from Nancy Drew to now the Hunger Games. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 a sad idea that like, hey, kids in the distant future, women are strong. <laughs> like that. Hopefully, that's not the case. Well, you know, I I do think that um, you know, the, the the story of the hero has been told over and over and over again, and maybe it is the heroine's time, and at some point it'll it'll balance out. But I don't I don't feel that writing speculative has given me permission to make a strong female character. I just that's what I write, um, and and again maybe it's like there are more women writing now without having to call themselves men to get published than ever before, and that that might make a difference. Um, it, and it'll be interesting to see how it trickles down because like there's no roles for strong female characters in TV and movies and things but as the storytellers start generating more of that stuff and it becomes more popular which is kind of why I don't really argue with the dystopian label is because it's popular when it's not popular anymore and people are like oh vampires or something like then it'll suck but <laughs> right now people are paying attention to it and then if you can get a strong character in there then people will notice it um, whereas, like when I started writing ten years ago, I had to—I've repeatedly explained what young adult is, and now I don't have to do that anymore. Even if they go, "Oh, you mean like Harry Potter?" or now they'll go, "Oh, like Hunger Games," and I'll be like, "Exactly." <laughs> so. Well, and also I think one of the things that we were saying uh, before is that it was interesting. Uh, Sheree and I uh, had a little glass of wine beforehand, and I was saying it was interesting that uh, you know it was. <laughs> you could never tell. That your book, your book had a boy in it, you know, right. because uh, so many, so many books right now, it's like the strong female, yeah. you know, main character, and so it's kind of rare to sort of have the strong. That's I loved reading. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. nice. But like character. that's what it's like for a boy. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a dude. The uh, yeah. yeah, and I. And to have a romance. Well, yeah, dudes, yeah, dudes like to smooch. Nice. It's true. I don't know. I don't know where you heard the that they don't, but they do. Um, no, yeah, and it's fun, I guess, to feel like you're kind of a minority in in the genre to have a male protagonist. It's um, you know, it's 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 uh, fun, I guess, because I think it's cool that there's something that's uh, being dominated by female protagonists. So it's, you know, I, I like being, you know, um, I like the fact that there's all these awesome stories with awesome female protagonists. So that's because that's, you know. You like being the boy in the girl band? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> vampire thing, they're like, don't you dare bring a book about vampires or zombies. And it seems like they've sort of maxed out on dystopian. Did you have some of that with, with publishers or agents where they're like, this is done, this is tired, and, and we don't need to see anymore? Or when I sold Struck, it was is still like at the height of the buying frenzy. Um, but I snuck in my, my new book that's coming out. Um, I call it a, a micro dystopian. <laughs> A micro dystopian because it's it's really it takes place within like a a hippie commune gone terribly wrong, and you know it's this world so like it's it's now, and I didn't even realize again that it was dystopian until I was talking about <laughs> this book with a friend of mine and she was like, so it's like a little little dystopia. Uh. <laughs> yes, it is. So I snuck it in. <laughs> yeah, I think um, you hit the nail on the head because when. Um, 
it's, 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 that's, you know, it's that whole label thing. When we sold the book, it was, uh, you know, to, to Scholastic who published it, it was, you know, it was, it was great. Then as we, um, about maybe six months to a year later, as we started to sell it um, to other countries around the world, um, some of them purchased it, but my uh, foreign rights agent, she stopped calling it a dystopia and started calling it a, a, an eco-thriller. Yeah. Or, a, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, or, you know, or eco-punk or, you know, all these, all these other labels. So it's all, that's why I guess I, I you know, it's like whatever, it's, it's a label. So, you know, she's like, oh, I don't call it a dystopia because, you know, they don't want those anymore. So it's, you know, it's all a trend. So people, you know, trying to make or follow trends, I guess. I think that, it, that that's something to note too, is like how long ago did we sell these books or write these books? The time to market and everything, I mean, it took me three years to write it. I sold it on an idea, so, you know, 20 years ago when I sold the book, it was brand new and nobody had ever heard of it. So um, that does make a difference. But you're right, the eco thing, I'm getting that yeah. too now. And I was like, oh, that's look totally what I've weird. written, an eco book. <laughs> Well, um, we're going to do the raffle. We're going to um, put a little table here. We've got books for sale. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. Thank you, Jennifer Bosworth, Chris Howard, and Sherelle Smith. My name is Cecil Caslucci. Thanks to Chris and Skylight Books and to the Los Angeles Review of Books and to Intelligentsia. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.